This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. No my Heidi my. Welcome to Cult Chat, the podcast where we talk about control, coercion, and all things cultish. I'm Dr. Caroline Ansley. I'm a medical doctor. As a child, I lived at the notorious Centrepoint community, and now I run a website that advocates for former Centrepoint children. I'm Liz Gregory, and I lead the Gloryvale Leavers Support Trust. I've spent the last decade helping people exit Gloryvale and journeying with them and building new lives. I'm Lindy Jacob. I'm a former member of the Exclusive Brethren, and I'm part of the Olive Leaf Network, an initiative that supports people leaving high-demand religious groups. Come with us as we unpack the cult playbook, talk to leavers and experts of coercive and controlling groups, and call for Kiwis to cult-proof their lives. Join us as we traverse the cultiverse. A warning, this podcast contains references to subjects and discussions which may be difficult for some people to hear. Please take care of yourselves and your whanau when listening. Hello again to our listeners. Welcome to Cult Chat. We've got Kaz and Lindy back again and today we'll be looking at the word cult. It has interesting connotations and there is a little bit of controversy around the word, but we're going to talk about what the word means, why we've chosen to use it in these episodes, and I guess what makes a cult a cult. We've also used words like coercion, control and cultishness. What we hope you'll find out today is that all of these concepts pull together to create cult-like groups. So Kaz, Welcome along, and Lindy, be good to have a chat with you again today. Are you ready for a chat about cults? I'm definitely ready. I'm rearing to go. Looking forward to this all week. Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm excited to be here, and it's yeah, it's a really interesting question. What what does what does the word cult actually mean, and why have we chosen to call ourselves cult chat? So yep, bring the conversation on. That's great. Let's just have a look at a little bit of the schedule or how we hope to approach this. We will be looking at the term and looking a little bit at the history of um, how we've come to use the word today. But most excitingly, we'll be looking at some of the cult experts and how they've pulled together. Uh, so um, Jan Yalala, um, we've got some information from Michael Langone, we've got Steve Hassan, and these are well-known names in the cult expert field. And we'd like to read their books and draw on their expertise so uh, so let's get into it. I guess if you're looking at the concept of cult, you'd go to the dictionary. But what we found is that dictionaries um, can just have really simple meanings. And often it doesn't actually encapsulate what we really need to say. So just looking at good old dictionary, it talks about it being a small religious group that is not part of a larger and more accepted religion. And that it has beliefs regarded by many people as extreme or dangerous. How do you feel about that one, Yes, It's very subjective. That's the problem. If you're in that group, you probably don't think that what you're holding to and ascribing to is either extreme or dangerous. Usually um, most people who, well, everyone who ends up in a, a cult group or cult-like group has um, entered believing that it's something um, wonderful, usually, and um, that... that 
that what they've found is a right path or a, a better way of living or some truth that has been missed by other members of society. So they wouldn't see it as extreme or dangerous usually. Um, as you know, I, I am a person who's interested in the history of the use of terms and in, and in the sort of etymology and all that type of thing. And yeah, I mean, I think Kaz has put her finger on something, a really key issue when it comes to talking about what a cult is, which is um, who gets to call someone else a cult? You know, what's what's your position that, that, you're, that you're standing in when you call someone a cult? And I think it's pretty obvious that in general, it is a term that's used by outsiders to a group. It's not the insiders who who use that term to describe themselves. So that's a um, that's something I think that's really important to be to be clear about. And and hey, all three of us are people who stand outside of um, outside of culty groups. I, I think we would yeah, we, none of us would term ourselves as currently being part of a group <laughs> um, that that is culty. So yeah, that's that's the position of of this podcast of Cult Chat. Yeah, we, we're we're from that position of being outsiders. Yeah, what other definitions have you got there? Well, I think just something really interesting there. I've spoken to someone, a current member of Gloria Vale, and had a discussion about the word cult. And this person said, "Yeah, I know, I know, and I'm in a cult. I'm definitely in a cult." And then it made me realise that she didn't realise that cult actually had harmful connotations. Mm -hmm. So she just thought it was cult because it was a little bit fringe. And I guess you look at the word early on in um, the history of the word, they were considered more fringe groups within larger religious sectors. But obviously you're missing a huge group of people here and they are culty groups who are non-religious. And so I think that's where your next lot of stepping up to your next definition, say, just look at something like Wikipedia, it talks about it being a pejorative term. Pejorative meaning it has a negative connotation already in it. So by using it, you're already putting a negative connotation on the group. But it does go further and starts giving classification in terms of it needs to have these characteristics, a self-appointed leader who excessively controls its members, requiring an unwavering devotion to a set of beliefs and practices which are considered deviant or outside of the norm. And at that point, it's not saying explicitly religious set of beliefs and practices. So I think that sort of casual term I can see has some benefit, that that definition. That's another another key point that you've put your finger on there is, is the term cult harmful or not that that's another um yeah that's another really critical point is um because again yeah these days it is definitely seen as a bit of a pejorative or a, a negative term to use i and on the whole media are very careful to use it um it's not so much used in in academia um but it still is yeah really obviously a very well known word in terms of the general public but yeah I think from my understanding and again I'm not an expert but from my understanding if we jump back to that history I understand that it came from from the academic field of sociology particularly I think from the 1930s onwards they began using that term and yeah again it was especially with studying religious groups and it wasn't intended necessarily as negative from the outset it was just yeah a term to describe these groups that sat kind of outside of generally held beliefs or practices 
Um, and it was especially used when describing like tribal practices and things like that with non, um, non-Westernized and non-Christianized mm-hmm. countries. Um, but yeah, my understanding is that after that, Christians in particular began to use it to describe any religious group that differed from mm. what they termed was orthodox. So then it sort of began to have, um, yeah, I guess overlapping uses and at times perhaps competing uses because there are people who, you know, would call Christianity a cult. Um, mm. And so it began to kind of, the waters began to get muddied. And um, my understanding is that then in particular around the 1970s when there were these really well-known and highly publicised um, groups that, that, that were culty um, caused a lot of alarm, especially across America, like the groups like um, the People's Temple, that's the Jim mm-hmm. Jones group, the Branch Davidians, mm-hmm. the Children of God, mm-hmm. um, also known as the Family, um, and Heaven's Gate, just, just to name some of them. They, they were these groups having a huge impact and drawing a lot of young people in particular to them and, and living really alternative lifestyles. And so then there became this huge movement that was sort of called the anti-cult movement, um, and that was primarily parents and family members who were really concerned about the effect that these groups were having on their young people in society. So, yeah, that, that sort of popularised the term around then too, and that definitely came with a very negative connotation because those groups, as we know, ended up being incredibly problematic. Like the Jim Jones one, um, you know, the death toll there with the, the mass suicide brought on by the leader that that death toll exceeded 900 it's still one of the biggest mass deaths in American history so groups like that became almost like the quintessential cult didn't they like if you Mm. say even today if you say to people what comes to mind when I say the word cult people will Mm -hmm. often say something like I'll drink the Kool-Aid or they'll often refer to something like Jim Jones so yeah it has got this um it has evolved to quite definitively usually refer to um, a group that is fringe but also harmful. Would you guys agree mm-hmm. with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hester, um, it, it, I mean, I, I was reading somewhere on um, Steve Hassan's website yesterday which talked about the idea of non-harmful cults. So I, I'm struggling to yeah. um, consider how it's possible to, to be a non-harmful cult <laughs> because of the inherent problematic, harmful qualities that seem to be inherent within cults. So I, I think by definition, at least in my idea, my, my view, that they, they do actually have to be harmful. And we'll go into in a bit more detail some of the specific qualities inherent in, in um, cults that, that make them more than just a really trendy group or mm. different from your local tennis club that really mm-hmm. that everyone's into, that, that actually distinctly harmful and problematic and can lead to people making choices such as happened in um, the Jonestown massacre that you're describing. So when I speak publicly, I often talk about a cult and define a cult, and in the context of Gloria Vale, I often say it's not the religious beliefs per se that make them a cult. It's their sociologically harmful practices. However, there is a problem there because what you think, the ideas you have, what you believe can lead to harmful practices. And so there's definitely 
a link, but I don't think it has to be characterised um, in a sense of just religion because we are going to be looking at uh, business cults, you know, conscious community, spiritual cults. Yeah, there are all types of cults, health cults, and so we're looking for those harmful practices, control, coercion. And I guess that leaps us into some of the um, psychologists who actually work in the cult field, they they flesh out their cult definitions. They have a lot more um, illustrations and examples to help explain the simple term. And I think one of my favourites is the classic definition from Langone and West. And they say this, a group or movement exhibiting great or excessive devotion or dedication to some person, idea or thing and employing unethical, manipulative or coercive techniques of persuasion and control designed to advance the goals of the group's leaders or to the actual or possible detriment of members, their families or the community. And so in there you've got those those harmful vibes sitting right there and then they go on to give the examples and I think we'll spend quite a bit of our session today looking at that checklist of culty groups, of coercive groups, of harmful, damaging social groups. How do you feel about that more fleshed out mm. definition? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like that one. It's fairly succinct. What I really like about it is it talks about excessive devotion and other groups call it like religious-like devotion. So it doesn't have to be religious, but religious-like. And so I think that's incredibly helpful for us to be uh, looking at. Look, another word that we haven't actually used yet, but within the religious sort of sphere, is the word sect. And I think probably, um, Lindy, you alluded to it earlier on, that groups that um, stray outside of what might be considered orthodox Christianity, but that might not be harmful groups, would probably be called a sect. They've got sectarian views, views that are just slightly... Yeah, off beam from the orthodoxy of that particular religion. And you'd have Hindu sects and Buddhist sects. And so they're not exclusively culty, but they're, they're, they're different and they represent a smaller group of adherents. Yeah, I think that uh, similar to cult, actually, sectors, I think, come to be a bit similar. Like, um, I, I know that it's not so much encouraged even to be used in academia these days because, again, it has come to be associated with often negative extremity or yeah, overly harmful, which is interesting because it did just sort of simply used to mean a smaller group. But mm. it, yeah, it now has also got that association of being yeah, heretical or not not sort of yeah, not the sanctioned orthodoxy of that group. So that that's interesting that it's sort of following a similar pattern to the use of the word cult there. Um, I've got your definition there that you just read out in front of me, which I'm just going to, let's repeat it again, because when, you, you know, when you're listening to things, sometimes you don't quite catch it. Do you mind if I repeat it? Is it, is it this one here that says, um, a group or movement exhibiting greater excessive devotion or dedication to a person, an idea, or a thing? Is that the one? Mm-hmm. That's it. And then, and then it goes on and says, and employs unethical, manipulative, or coercive techniques of persuasion or control designed to advance the goals of the leaders to the actual or possible detriment of members, their families and the community. So the thing that stood out to me with that one um, when you read it out was that this one, unlike what um, Carolyn just mentioned earlier about how some cults 
are perceived to be positive or can even be positive, yeah, this, this definition very, very clearly states that it's, it, it has negative outcomes because it states yeah. that, you know, this, that the group employs unethical, manipulative and coercive yeah. techniques and it's to the detriment of members, families and their community. So that's interesting, yeah. eh, that they, do you, do you know if they, if Langone and West discuss, yeah, why they put such an emphasis on the harmful side of things? Is that, that's uh, obviously their position, is that they're concerned about the harmful outcomes of these groups? That's correct. Yes, so Langone's got a fantastic book called Recovery from Cults, which I highly recommend. Right, so, yeah, yeah. Definite real interest in looking at the impacts. And so, of course, the definition, yeah, it would make sense that that's included. I want to come back to that idea of great or excessive devotion or dedication to one thing, because the, the, the thing that comes to mind when you excessively devote or dedicate yourself to something, Thing, person or idea is the cost to you in your life and you know mm. for instance if you're a marathon runner or an Olymp- Olympian you know like the cost mm. in your life of giving everything to one thing has has consequence and it asks a lot of you things that you can't give yourself to that may be important for your physical mental spiritual well-being that you can't then devote your time to so it's more it's not just what you, um, how you're harming yourself in the process of giving. It's what you're also not giving yourself to. The opportunity cost, education or other relationships or other development of yourself in other ways. Yes, um, yes. Because we've only got a certain amount of time in our lives, right? Yeah, and I think, I think you've put your finger on something interesting there because I think all of these groups, the people in them, they... they they do know that there are costs to it, um, or and I'm in particular thinking of my own background in the exclusive brethren, where you know I'm I'm not going to say whether they're a cult or not, and I'll leave that up to you know listeners to to put pieces together and draw their own conclusions. But there are significant costs to being an exclusive brethren member, and but for them it's the goal and the and the value of living a more separate life. And that kind of thing is, you know, for them it's believed to connect them to mm-hmm. greater divine favour and, um, you know, purity from evil influences and things like that. So for them, the outcomes of, you know, what they believe they're getting are, are worth the costs that they have. Mm. Would, it, would it be similar with Gloria Vale, Liz? Like, you can't tell me that, you know, those women love working those really long hours and really servile tasks. Like, you know, and they can't. Yeah, they're not naturally loving that, are they? But would it be that they do it because they perceive there's a greater good that they're working to? Definitely. So it's not like there's even a choice there to love it or not love it. And we've asked people who've lived in Borova, you know, what, what did you prefer most, the laundry or the days you did food prep? And we've had people literally blank out and say, um, like the concept of having a preference for something or liking mm. something about mm. that's not how the life works there. It's it's obedience, it's submission. Yeah. It's not about my preference and what I like. And so when yes. someone leaves a group like that and you ask them, Oh, what kind of job would you like to do? It's, yeah, it's they quite don't. a foolish yes. question. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I totally yeah. understand. Cause in my early twenties I went to see a life coach. To, to supposedly, you know, I was looking for help with yeah, making decisions around a career. And they kept asking me questions that I had no frame of reference for. Like it was, um, he would ask things like, what what did you always dream of doing from when you were a little girl? Yeah. And I was just like, I don't have 
an answer for that because we, you know, and then and then they'd say things like, well, what kind of hobbies and interests and extracurricular activities mm-hmm. did your parents encourage or did you pursue? And because that often gives you a key. And I'm like, um, none. Like we, our choices were so limited, you know. So it was bizarre because it was like they were trying to get me to draw on aspects mm-hmm. of my identity that I had not yet been able to uncover myself because of the social environment of the of the um of the group yeah yeah bingo you've you've used the word identity and I think as we talk a lot more about cults that's going to be a Mm. concept that just keeps coming up and I think that's where the uh, that's one of the harmful social practices that goes on inside these groups and we haven't even begun to look at some of those characteristics but we will move the conversation that way in a moment but you kept talking Lindy about the cost and even um Kaz you spoke about the cost of someone who say pursues um, you know, sport for their own interest to the, you know, excessively devoted to it. I think the difference with these cults is that there's ideally a cult leader and it's that person's dreams that everyone else gets pulled into. Mm. The people mm. joining think they're coming to a group that might, you know, change the world or there's some, you know, something great and wonderful about and utopian about it. They don't realise that the leader usually has some sort of personality disorder, there's some narcissism, there's psychopathy. You're talking about some dangerous people who are gathering around them, a group of people, and in order to keep them under control, they strip away their identity. And so as we start to look at some of these closed social systems, I think Yanya Malich actually has some of the more helpful concepts around these closed social systems, her definition fleshes things out a bit more. Should we but look into we that? To that? Yeah, we could, but I just thought it might be worth mentioning that Dr Norris was a, she's a New Zealand forensic psychiatrist, and she was called to the stand to testify in the Gloria Vale Employment Court hearing. And she wasn't told that it was for Gloria Vale or it was around Gloria Vale, but she was given characteristics of a closed community where everyone lived on the same property, you know, ate the same food, were told what to wear, didn't have choices around jobs, etc. And she was asked to do some research and um, provide reflections for the court on what that meant for choice and capacity and those sorts of concepts. And she didn't use the word cult or sect. And she didn't use the word high demand group, which is another word, which often is a word instead of cult, that the demands are high on the people living in there. She didn't use the word thought control, which has links to sort of the the brainwashing and the techniques that can happen. She used a new word called high cost. It's a high cost group. And I think about that in terms of it's a high cost if you choose to join that group because you give up everything, perhaps if you came into it with, um, you know, money or resources or finances or dreams or visions, you give it all over to the group. But the high cost also exists when you try to leave. You leave it all behind. You leave your family, your security, the job, the place you've been living. And the, it's a high cost group. So when they talk about choice in terms of leaving a group like this, it's a stark choice. It's a bounded it's a, choice. It's a bounded choice. And we're going to have another... Um, chat about the terms, the glossary of, of cult groups and bounded choice, stark mm. choice, these yeah. groups where actually, is it a choice where my way or the highway, you stay here under some sort of servitude or you leave and I cast you to outer darkness? Yeah, is this choice? It's mm. not really a choice, and is it? 
it's not really a choice. And so, yeah, so let's have a look at some of the um, elements there, Kaz. So I was thinking we, we mentioned uh, Yanya Lalich and um, Steve Hassan, but maybe we'll start with um, uh, Yanya Lalich's definition. Yanya Lalich has, uh, she's a, an American woman, a professor of sociology and an international authority on cults, extremism and coercion. Mm. Prior to her academia, uh, career. She spent um, a long period of time in a, um, a radical cult that was a Marxist, Marxist-Leninist group called the Democratic Workers' Party, um, which mm. existed in California, and it eventually closed down. But that um, taught her an enormous amount. And um, in her uh, unpacking of um, the experiences that she had and the choices she made and her own feeling trapped in that group, she went on to develop a, a career. And she, her um, description of a, um, a cult is a closed social system mm. with an authoritarian or a charismatic leader that demands all loyalty and obedience you can't question that person, and the leader is typically the originator of the belief system. It also has a transcendent belief system, which I love that word, uh, which gives the followers the answers to everything, and the ends of achieving that belief system justify the means. You could therefore mm-hmm. be asked to do anything. Within the goals of the group, it's therefore okay, which causes moral issues, because individual morality has to be sacrificed, and that can lead to a slide in morality. And then, uh, as well as that, there's a system of control, which is the overt rules and the regulations, and then there's the system of influence, which is the psychological and social tactics which prey on emotions such as guilt and shame and anger and fear. That's useful. I like how she, like with that term, a closed social system, I like how she makes it really clear that it's a social system because I think, yeah, that's another key thing about these kind of groups is that they're inherently social aren't they? Like it's, mm. they, they, these environments arise in how people relate to each other. And, you know, it sounds really obvious to say that, but it, yeah, it is kind of important. It's, um, yeah, it's how people are relating to each other and how they're using relational dynamics like power and, and control and influence, right? To, to mm. yeah, to create, create whole systems. Yeah. Transcendent yeah. belief system, system of, con- systems of control in systems of influence. So those are the more subtle ones, are they? The systems of influence as opposed to the systems of control? Hmm. Yeah, so systems of influence, yeah, they are, um, they're less obvious. And I think that's that's because of the nature of emotions. So um, anyone who is, say, a free agent out here, we also experience emotions. And so um, it can be hard to tell when someone is manipulating you or coercing you. Say if you're a, a really trusting person or perhaps naive, you know, manipulation, there's the cunning nature of manipulation. And that's often where you say people don't join cults, they are recruited. There's actually like an active thing happening from the other side to recruit someone, but they use, yeah, people's guilt, shame, anger, love and fear. And the idea of indoctrination um, is the attacking of self, the taking a part of yourself. So you, you learn to not trust your own being anymore and they want to rebuild you with a cult persona. That's why people in cults, after living in cults for decades, they find when they come out, um, if they had lived previously outside of the group and they joined the group and they were there for years and then they left again, 
they have to go back and find out that person they were prior to leaving because they will have experienced a falling away of their own sense of self, who they are, their identity, but there's also the moral decline. And I'm sure we're going to do a, a podcast on that concept of the things people do inside cult groups horrify them often after they leave Mm. and they can't believe that they found themselves um, being involved in or watching um, as others behave so badly towards other people and that they sat idly by. And um, John Reddy in the Gloribel film speaks about that. The terrible things are happening and he said it didn't even strike me for a minute that I should have done something about it or that I could or that I should have spoken up and said "Don't, don't treat my family like this. You know, and he said, in coming out here, I've, I've got a lot to be um, sorry for in many ways. So I think, um, yeah. yeah, I love, I love the um, categorising of the four, the four systems. So I think we could probably go for a, a simple definition that maybe we want to hang a few hats on. One is we agree it's a, a group of people who are fervently following a person or a belief system and who engage in a number of harmful social practices, and they involve control and coercion, and then a large majority perhaps have their uh, basis in religion, but they can be found in business, politics, health, philosophy. So that might be a sort of well-rounded, pithy answer to what is a cult. Let's keep going with um, talking about what some of these other people have said, um, because Steve Hassan is another name that is frequently kicked around the culty field, eh? Um, yeah, uh, well, Steve Hassan was um, a former member of the Moonies, or otherwise known as the Unification Church. Um, and he, um, after leaving, he went on to um, uh, develop an interest in exit counselling and has had decades of experience in that and uh, written a number of books. Quite his one, his, one of his most famous books is a book called Combating Cult Mind Control. Um, and I think it's... I haven't read it myself yet. It's, it's, it's on the way <laughs> to my bookshelf. Um, but he's developed, oh, he, he runs a website called the Freedom of Mind Resource mm. Centre, which he developed in 1999. And he developed this model called the BITE model to describe mm. the specific methods that cults use to recruit and maintain control over people. And BITE stands for Behaviour, Information, Thought and Emotional Control. I love it. B-I-T-E, Behaviour, mm. Information, Thought, control, emotional control. And, you know, I've actually used this and put it into categories like on an A4 page and put a quadrant and put each of the B-I-T-E in it and have um, put all the the, um, examples under each category and I've given it to someone or a group of people who left Gloria Vale and just got them to get a pen and tick all of the things they had experienced. They were utterly shocked. And then at the end I said to them, are you aware that this BITE model is actually a useful analytical tool or an identification tool and what is a cult, and their eyes just popped out of their heads. Mm. So it can be so useful. So shall we have a look? Yeah, through, that, whole, um, that, whole thing yeah. Of, that whole thing of if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it might be, might be a duck. I find it interesting that his example specifically links each of those four things to this concept of control. Mm-hmm. Again, eh, that's, that's worth sort of pointing out that... Um, a huge amount of at the heart of hey why are we why are we doing this podcast and of the conversation of culty groups is this is um, control and it's not just it's not just any control because there's lots of different forms of control in our life 
and you know from governments you know I have to wear a seatbelt when I drive my car and um, there's you know economic forces that control us there's all sorts of aspects of control in our daily lives and not all of them are bad but it's when mm. it's it's when we feel that they are straying over into areas that are actually causing harm and are overstepping the boundaries of one person controlling another, eh? That's the, mm. yeah. yeah. I just wanted to jump back briefly um, before we dig more into, um, I know, as you wanted to say, a bit more under examples from the bike model, right? Mm. But I wanted to jump back a wee bit. A few minutes ago, you were talking about the term high cost that Dr Norris had used in the court cases because, yeah, there are other terms that are thrown around like high cost and high demand or high control and especially um, in in my, you know, admittedly limited research on looking around at terms um, over the last few years has been, yeah, I have found that sociologists now use the phrase or have and have for some quite some time used the term new religious movement oh. instead of the, the term cult, which is yeah, quite an interesting one because I think primarily they're going with that because it's it is perceived as a more neutral a more neutral term. The rebranding Yeah, sociologists obviously they're trying they really want to be or be perceived as being objective and not um, making moral judgments on a group. And so I think, you know, the, the belief is that by calling a group a new religious movement, um, there's not a moral judgment or um, a negative sort of association with that. There are a couple of downsides to that term, which is, well, what do you do with a group that's not actually new? It's, um, yeah. yeah, a form of a religious movement that's actually been kicking around for a couple of hundred or more years. Then it doesn't really qualify as new. So that doesn't quite fit, fit the bill. And especially there's some incredibly old religious groups and sects from all kinds of religions, Islam and Buddhism and all sorts all around the world. So, yeah, in in my view, it's kind of an awkward fit, that that Mm. use of that word new religious movement. But, hey, for what it is, that is definitely the term that's used now in sociology. But where I found the terms like high cost and high demand used, that was more in the fields of of like psychology and mm-hmm. sort of the um the therapeutic professions that that you know are looking at psychology and looking at the mind and and that kind of thing they there's a lot of research mm-hmm. there that is actually in my view more useful than um a lot of the sociological work especially if you're primarily interested in looking at the experiences of former members or people who have left it seems that those more, yeah, the academic research that's going in in those fields is is more relevant to leavers and people who are trying to process what's perceived as harmful or difficult. Mm. So that and that's where terms like spiritual abuse and religious trauma and stuff are also being used as as people are searching for terms to describe what they're seeing. Mm. So yeah, I just thought that was worth giving a quick profiling of those other. T- terms as well and where and how they're used. Yeah, it probably yeah. is a good point to mention, though. Remember that um, not everyone is against cults, and there seems to be a growing sort of uh, movement of what you call cult apologists, and quite a lot of them are in academia circles, and they are people that protect cults. But I can't get to the bottom of it because they all involve sociologically harmful practices, so I can't work out what would motivate someone <laughs> Uh, to be a cult apologist and to try and, you know, 
Yeah, what do you have you got any thoughts on yeah, have you got any thoughts um, on oh, that? Because no. there are a lot of people who still defend Centrepoint's ideology, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and um, that's quite right. I would call them cult apologists as well. But it's a little bit different when you've been in a cult, when you're apologising yeah. or, or trying to make smaller the impacts of that group. You've obviously got skin in the game. Uh, you mm-hmm. might you might potentially go to jail for some of the crimes you've committed that mm-hmm. haven't been revealed. So that's a little bit different from an academic who um, mm-hmm. is in an ivory tower um, writing papers, influencing people. Why would, why would they do that? And speaking of the word influence, I just wanted to draw attention to influence in that in, we talk about control. Influence is another word for that, and not all influence... Well, it's not uh, influence isn't a bad thing necessarily. We're all in relationships with other people, or um, in our lives, or at a leadership level, or an organisational level, where others have influence on us. And it's, so, mm-hmm. influence isn't bad. It's just how it's applied. You know, whether you have free freedom to make choice, for instance, um, whether you experience compassion whether the leader who's influencing you understands their own limits and recognises mm-hmm. that they don't know anything about this topic that they're trying to influence you about, whether you feel empowered or not by um, the role of this person or organisation in your, in your life, whether the person is accountable or trustworthy, mm-hmm. um, whether there's checks and balances, informed consent, in justifying the means. So, like, influence can be talk, thought of as being um, either constructive and healthy or destructive and unhealthy. Some of those ideas you can find in Steve Hassan's um, mm. website because he talks about the whole idea of the influence continuum, moving from healthy to unhealthy. And that underpins um, what we are talking about earlier about the bite model and control mm. and how we break that down. Brilliant. Yeah, can we head to that bite model and, yep. and look at the behaviour control, information control, thought control, emotional control, and also we can point people to um, Michael Langone's website where there's a checklist of cult cult indicators. I guess it's a helpful sort of analytical tool. I mean, it, it can be useful. It's not meant to be like diagnostic, but I find it quite helpful to put it in front of people and have them recognise, yeah, you're right, there's something not right. So let's have a look at some of these um, four categories. This will help identify, I think, for people what, what harmful looks like. And you're going to find some quite extreme versions here. Much of what I look at here sums up Gloria Vale, Mm -hmm. and yet you're going to have smaller, you know, you're going to have elements of it in other groups and smaller groups to a lesser extent, and even individually um, harmful relationships. But let's have a look at our behaviour control. So Steve Hassan's model looks at it's controlling what you can do, Mm. where you live, who you have relationships with, what you wear, your hairstyles, Diet, food, whether you do fasting, how much sleep you can have, what access to money you have, how much you give, your leisure and holiday time, where, when and with whom do you have these holidays, the repetitive ritualistic activities in the group, do you need permission for major decisions, is there a reward or a punishment system, is there encouragement to spy on others, and they created dependency and obedience to the group. So it's very much around behaviour. Lindy, any of these jumping out at you with respect to your history with the Exclusive Brethren? 
Yes. <laughs> Out of 10? <laughs> Can we have a rating? I look at yeah. the glory bell and I'm like, 10 out of 10. Like, there's no doubt every single one of those elements is, is highly controlled. <laughs> Yours would be getting pretty close. Yeah. Kaz, you were yeah. in Centre Point. Yeah, and you've, yeah. Um, you've, you've spoken that um, at sort of seven, the cult, those sort of aspects, the culty characteristics, you know, you weren't yeah. quite so aware of them. But I, I think there was, there was definitely stuff like um, having to be part of um, long meetings, having to have long, intensive um, workshop groups that um, adults attended, having to uh, emote constantly, lots and lots of expression of intense emotion, sharing everything, uh, having sex all the time with everyone and not being able to be a monogamous. Like, there was a lot of behaviour that you had to mm. fit in with, having your hands off in a parenting perspective. So there was, a, there was some mm. strong ethical, not ethical, um, strong ideologies that you really just had to follow and, and you, you, you couldn't not. Being sexually active from very young age, lots and lots of pressure on children to be sexually expressive. So that, these were all behaviours as well. They were just not the conservative behaviours that we might expect to see in, well, we, sit, we often do see in religious groups. They were on the other end of the spectrum, but a, a, a requirement, a constant pressure to behave in a very liberal way. Gosh, yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because you're right. Often it's, we look at the ultra-conservative, but there was an other, another ditch you could jump into, the extremely permissive, and yet that's not what creates the cult. It's the other socially harmful you know, practices. Let's have a look at information control, and I'm thinking, Lindy, you're going to be putting your hand up for a few of these. <laughs> Deception, withholding or distorting information, reducing access to information other than what they've created themselves, um, reduction of sort of TV, books or internet access, keeping busy so you can't access information, a them and us thinking, spying on others, reporting and just cult-generated information and propaganda. They create their own sort of newsletters, magazines, videotapes, and as far as information goes, they may have that unethical use of confession. And often as new people join sort of culty groups, they can be asked, and I know Yanyal Alip spoke of it, there was a whole interview process, and they basically wanted her whole history and background, but basically they're writing down information that they can one day use against you, find out where your weaknesses are, and um, use it as a weapon against you. How do you feel about the information? What was your TV and radio, internet situation like with the exclusive brethren, Lindy? <laughs> yeah, well, we had no, um, up until 2008, which is the year I left, we had absolutely no TV or internet or radio input um, allowed at all, or even, even recorded music. So that, uh, yeah, the information to the wider world was definitely heavily restricted. And, yeah, that was because it was seen as being sort of portals to the world, which the world was, you know, their negative phrase that encompassed sort of everything outside of their own reality or their own system. But, yeah, it actually, the information control makes me think of um, the question of education in general as well. Because yeah. mm -hmm. often... There's another really interesting thing that I'm sure we'll 
come across several times in our discussions, but the difference between people who are born outside of a group and who are recruited or join as adults um, versus those who are second or multi-generation who mm. are born into the group. And, yeah, that they then have, obviously, even more of their identity in their life has been has only been known within the group. So that, that um, yeah, just changes it even more. And I'm thinking an area that really fascinates me is the area of education. I've got two young children myself and we're starting to think about questions like where will we get them educated and what kind of education do we want them to have? And some of these groups, some of these groups have created their own forms of education for even Mm -hmm. children or young people that meet, you know, New Zealand's education standards. Or not. Yeah, or, or not, as the case may be. And and sometimes they include teaching about the group's beliefs and sometimes mm-hmm. they don't. And, yeah, there's, I mean, particularly religious schools. There's a whole number of religious schools up and down New Zealand. Some some are Christian, some um, are connected to other forms of religious group um, or there's the whole field of homeschooling as well. But, yeah, that... That's another interesting thing, mm. which I'm getting away here from the use of the terms. So and we sorry. will have. I think I'm going we will down have. a rabbit hole, but um, yeah, I to think me, we'll follow you down I, there. Well, <laughs> yeah, when point. I when I look at the word information, for me, mm-hmm. it's to education and education control as well. Yeah, particularly for the young, that's something I'm interested in. Thinking Brilliant, about. and I think I think we'll have a whole session on education. There's uh, a lot to think about in that sphere. Or let's uh, jump ahead to uh, thought control. Let's have a look. Expectation to accept the group doctrine as the only truth. The black and white thinking, us versus them, good versus evil, insiders versus outsiders. Changing people's name and identity. And then the loaded language, which are cliches or other little sentences which stop critical thinking. Reducing complex things into simple buzzwords. Some use hypnotic states to undermine critical thinking. And then you've just got thought-stopping techniques, denial, rationalisation, chanting, singing, humming, rejection of science and critical thinking or questions. Are you allowed to ask questions around doctrines and policies? Can you talk about other ideologies open? So that's the idea of what goes on around the mind. Just a quick 30-second thought on that, Kaz. Oh yeah, I, I, I um, uh, people have said to me a number of times that at centre point they get they have these little cliches, thought stopping kind of statements like being accused of being blocked if they ask questions, you know, needing to get in touch with their loving, you know, just uh-huh. these these ideas that just kind of like were rolled out repeatedly to exactly shut down a person's inquiry or examination or push back onto them that any problem they discomfort or concern they might have had was really all their problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about Gloria Vale and one of the big ones is trust God. Trust God. Don't do anything about it. Things aren't working. Just trust God. Do nothing. Sit on your hands. Just trust God. But again, it's to stop critical thinking. It's to stop people thinking that they, there might be an action they could take. And then let's just look at this final one, emotional control. And in groups like cult groups, often, you know, emotions are, are pushed down and yet you, care spoke about heightened sort of emotions in, in the centre point. So um, 
It's about having a narrowed emotional range. Some emotions are bad. Emotions are always your fault, never the leadership. Promoting guilt and unworthiness. So you feel guilty, deficient, unwise and a sinner. Obviously, um, identity guilt about your past or your family, that's bad. They instill fear. Um, and everywhere you go inside those groups, you're worried about being shunned or your loss of salvation. There's also the use of love, like love bombing to new members. Phobia indoctrination, so you're afraid of demons or you get frightened into staying in the group. And they say things like there's no happiness out there or you're um, worried if, if you leave, you know, something bad is going to happen. So, again, it's this fear-based scenario. And here's a good one. Leavers are weak, undisciplined and worldly. And so you're really looking at just the emotional emotional control. And I think, obviously, would you say, Lindy, that it's those emotional control features that leave you quite crippled when you are in a group? What was your experience and when you leave a group? Yeah, yeah. Shoot, it's hard to it's hard to summarize um, you know, what springs to mind when, when you read through all of that. Yeah. I mean that that they're all very important, but as we know, human beings um, are incredibly emotionally connected and emotion, you know, emotions are core to how we relate to others and to having um, having having a holistic and a positive life. So um, if there's something at play that's that's messing with you emotionally, then that's, yeah, very difficult. And, I mean, it's something we'll explore later, but in, in some laws in many countries, uh, this is shown to us by the fact that emotional abuse is actually criminalised. So, yeah, that's um, that's another interesting thing. But, hey, I, I wonder if time's getting away on us, so I wonder if we should shift, you know, draw this all together and ask ourselves, well, you know, I'll ask, I'll ask you guys, why have we called ourselves culture, given Given everything we've said that it's um it is a controversial term with you know it is still a, a, it's still in some ways a, a bit of a blurry term that's used to describe um, maybe you know a pop star having a cult following or a vegan cult um as well as used to describe these dreadful groups like the Jim Jones group where there's been a mass murder as a result of it you know it is a, it is a term that does have a broad spectrum. It can be controversial. Why do we think that the term is still useful? Why have we we used it? Well, I think it's snappy and pithy, and I think people know what the word means inherently. I think we can have these discussions and try and broaden the perspective. But at the end of the day, I think your common average Joe blog can sniff out culty activities. I think people know what looks harmful. And if you're seriously calling a group a cult, I think others need to take notice of that. And it's also just a platform to have discussions um, with people. You know, what is a cult? It's sort of a bit easier than saying, well, you know, we're involved in a new new religious movement exploration or <laughs> we're reading a book <laughs> on on this. Actually, everyone just knows knows um, knows what it means essentially. But I think um, I think adding it with the words coercion and control. Uh, broadens that discussion. So we know we're not just talking about cult fashion, cult music. No. Yes. Cult. Yes. Yes. Margarine. Do you want to talk, Kaz, Kaz, do you want to talk a little bit to our, on our logo we do have these three words, cultiness, coercion and control under them. What? Yeah, what? 
Well, I why think the, do you, yeah. why do you pick those words? I think the idea is that um, what we're saying before is that people, uh, uh, that control is all about freedom or lack thereof, right? You know, like mm-hmm. being able to think the way you think, being able to express yourself the way you are, being able to have your own independent, autonomous identity that's come out of where you've come from and where you're going and who you're, you're, you're most meant to be in the world. When you're being controlled, all of that gets squashed and, and flattened off and you become something that someone else needs you to be to achieve their goals. Coercion is, is I guess, the, the, the ways it's done. It's the, the, the powers, the, the fear. I, I, don't, I don't know how well people understand what coercion is. We think, of, we think of coercion when someone's got a gun to your head. We understand that, when there's a physical gun to your head. But coercive control, using coercion to make someone do something that you want them to do, is like a proverbial or an imaginary gun to the head. You know, like, and that's something that people can't see. And and so I think w- when we explicitly talk about coercion, other people call, you know, in other, other states or other places they call um, undue influence, where mm-hmm. people are being influenced in a way that is n- not safe or acceptable or legal. <laughs> right. Yeah. So in summary, on Cult Chat, when we're talking about the term cult, yep, we, we use this term cultiness to say we're talking about groups that we may or may not be able to say whether they clearly are a cult, but we can say that they definitely are a little bit culty as the saying goes. And we also, yeah, we're talking about groups that have got high levels of coercion and high levels of control in them. Right. Well, it's been wonderful to have a chat with you. Head to the Olive Leaf website because they've got a little test you can take to see if you're in a group that's a little uh, less healthy and ask yourself these questions. There's the high demand hand. Are my relationships impacted to me belonging to this group? Are my resources impacted? That might be my time, money or my skills. Are my education opportunities and access to information being impacted? Are my employment and career options being deeply impacted? And lastly, is my lifestyle being deeply impacted? That it might be my choice of how and where to live, my beliefs and my values. So that's what we need to do today. Encourage Kiwis to cult-proof their lives. Okay, thanks for having us, guys. It's been really lovely to chat. How about we'd love it if um, you guys go to our Facebook page, Cult Chat, leave a review, tell us what you think, or listen and subscribe on Apple Podcast or Spotify and leave a review there and follow us there. And otherwise, we'll see you next time. Bye for now. See ya. Bye. If anything in today's episode was upsetting for you and you'd like to talk to somebody, free call or text 1737 for support from a trained counsellor. Or visit the resources section on the New Zealand Olive Leaf Network website for a range of resources that might be of interest and use to you. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are the speakers alone and Cult Chat does not necessarily share or endorse them. 